You're listening to Tech Talk Central. So we're here back at MWC 18 once more in Barcelona. This is Vicky Colovo for Tech Talk Central. And I'm here with Helen Keegan and her friends. Um, Rafe Blanford is on my right. And Paul Swaddle. Swaddle. Okay, sorry for the wrong pronunciation. Um, so we'll start by doing a short introduction of what you do right now in business-wise. business, business wise. And we're here to talk about trends, what are we going to see at MWC and what to expect. Let's look a, a little bit, you know, also about the future, what's gonna, what we're going to see. So Helen, take over. Thanks very much, Vicky. Um, my name's Helen Keegan. I do consulting in mobile marketing, advertising and media and help companies, particularly media companies, work out their mobile strategies. I also do knowledge and networking events. I host them, manage them. Uh, and I've got a few big ones here at Mobile World Congress. So come to Swedish Beers on Wednesday night. We've moved. We're at a bar called Moy Buenas and it's just down the road from the old place. Check it out at SwedishBeers.org. Handing over to Rafe. Hello, I'm Rafe Blanford. I'm a technology strategy director at Digest LBI, which is a marketing and technology agency. Uh, I specialize in kind of mobile and emerging technologies with kind of a marketing focus. So we work with lots of big brands, help them build apps, do consultancy around digital services, and indeed kind of the full range of things that you'll see at MWC and in digital generally. Hi, I'm Paul Swaddle. Uh, I co-founded a company called Pocket App. We are unsurprisingly an app development company. Uh, we build apps for a wide range of enterprise and uh, brands. Um, and I've been in the mobile industry since 1999. Um, so I actually remember when we used to go to Cannes rather than Barcelona. <laughs> the old days, yeah. Um, so what are we starting off? Is it AI? I know you want to talk about that. You want to start from that? Let's start with what happened from last year, maybe, and will we see it again this year? So what was your highlight last year? Was there one? I'm racking my brains now and trying to think, was there anything really exciting? I remember ne Nokia's network in a backpack that I thought was quite exciting. I don't know how many they sold, but... Uh... Um, I think last year was the first year I, I really felt that cars were everywhere. Uh, prior to that, there'd been the odd... Uh, piece. Um, and I think we're probably going to see a lot more of that this year. Um, and as a, an area for development, it's an area where we're seeing a lot of companies start to specialize. Um, and also it's got a lot of challenges around the AI side of things, but also what should, could, and sh shouldn't you let a driver do while they're in a car? I think for me, the last few years of MWC have actually been about the expansion of the show into essentially seven or eight mini shows each of which are based around a theme and automotive was definitely one of them last year the operators are still central to the show because that's the nature of the gsma but actually handsets which used to be kind of the all-dominant thing that would be the thing that was always mentioned in the mainstream news and most of the industry news as well it's not quite a sideshow but it's certainly not a central theme in the same way so you could you know think about iot there's certainly something around networks and operators, kind of the infrastructure, but then there'll be a section on health, there'll be a section on uh, smart cities, on industry, and depending how you divide up, the reality is, of course, they all orbit around mobile in some way, and they all connect to each other, and I think that's kind of the thing I expect to continue 
Um, if we were looking for something new, it's really about the maturing of those areas that we've been talking about and will be talking about and whether that's automotive or whether that's practical uses of um, immersion as in VR and augmented reality or whether that's sort of AR becoming a, a marketing buzzword this year or 5G, just that bit closer to deployment. I mean, that's the thing about the show now. It isn't quite so much, oh, there's something new and shiny every year. This is something part of the infrastructure that's embedded all around us. There's 2 billion smartphones out there. The majority of the planet is now connected. And so really it's about the things that you can do on top of that. And by having that happen at such a scale, all the things that go in to make it up, and whether that's components in hardware or the software and service expertise or the customer experience, whatever it happens to be, that now applies in so many more places. And so I think the most exciting things you will see will have very little to do with mobile phones as it would have been, you know, when Paul was at Cannes, and now will actually be about all the things that will make life better. And that's reflected in the way the GSMA talks about the kind of global development initiatives and the things about how that can improve quality of life. And it's easy to be skeptical about that, but also you realize the power of change that that brings. And that's actually one of the reasons that I think it's still exciting to come to Barcelona and see what's new. Do you think the GSMA and the the big companies involved, particularly telcos, are affecting that change? Or is it just kind of fluffy words to make us feel better? I think since the very beginning, this show's mainly been about saying we're not just dumb pipes. Um, and I think the issue is they're primarily dumb pipes. Uh, if you look at the services that have come on board over the last few years, the services like WhatsApp have removed the operator from being part of your experience. You're network agnostic. Um, uh, my kids will swap their SIM card for a better deal at, at a moment's notice because it doesn't matter. They don't lose contact with anybody. The lock-ins of the uh, early 2000s don't exist. Number portability. So actually, it's become harder and harder. And the show has become increasingly about everything except desktop um, because that way you can make a mobile operator sexier. Yeah, I think inevitably there's some fluffiness to it, but I don't know where that doesn't exist in the, the kind of corporate world. And, you know, despite it being fluffy, that change is very real. And whether it's the operators driving it, they are absolutely an essential enabler. And as Paul says, there is this tension between dumb pipe versus... But the thing is, it's not really a dumb pipe. In fact, it's a very, very smart pipe and the infrastructure investments should not be underestimated. I think the problem is that operators sometimes overreach. But again, it's a very natural thing to do. A good example of that is this year, we're going to see several smart speakers from operators. So Deutsche Telekom will be announcing Magenta. Uh, Telefonica will be talking more about Aura. Um, Orange, I think, have uh, uh, Django or something similar to that. Uh, are they really going to compete against, you know, the likes of Alexa and Google Home? In some markets, maybe SK Telecom's been really successful in their home market because they've exploited the fact there's a gap in terms of language and locale support. But really, uh, are the operators the ones you're going to want to trust to own your AI overall in your whole life? I, I find it difficult to see, even for the ones that have kind of quad play opportunities like Orange in France, for example, that maybe maybe there. But it still comes back to me that actually that smart pipe that I talked about earlier is actually becoming even more important because we're seeing the rise of IoT type networks and whether that's NBI to NBIoT or LTAM doesn't really matter. The point of those is actually it's going to be about connecting not just billions of phones, it's going to be about connecting billions of smart 
devices. And what's interesting, I think, we're going to see those networks actually become more sophisticated because the big trend, I think, around IoT this year will be about edge analytics and smartness on the edge of the network. And it still makes sense if that is part of the network infrastructure. And so that's going to, for me, one of the big discussions in the next few years is just how smart is the network? And I think all the evidence points towards it becoming much more intelligent in the future, both in the way it becomes self-configuring and in terms of you know the way it's put together. That said, most of the thing that consumers will see and people get excited about are still going to be devices from third parties. Operators aren't going to control those or indeed the services or the apps that run on them. And so we're going to continue to have this debate that so operators will desperately want to appear relevant. And the thing is, they are. They are absolutely vital. That building block, that infrastructure, which is worth trillions of dollars in terms of the sunk investment and more to come in the future as we see the big deployment and rollout of 5G, and that is going to be a driving force for changing the world, as you were talking and alluding to there, Helen. But actually, that's the thing about mobile. For it to really work, it needs everyone to play well together. And that's been enforced in the past by regulations. If you look at, you know, that's one of the things that the GSMA has done very successfully in the GSM networking standards. And it does worry me that as things become more complicated, enforcing that standardization, enforcing that kind of sense of all playing well together is going to become harder. And you could actually link that into a kind of US versus Europe thing as well, which maybe we'll come back to later. Feeling a bit mind blown now. <laughs> um, so I think that's really interesting talking about how we play well together uh, because it. I think there's... Um, I don't think most startups even know that the GSMA exists uh, or the role that telcos might play in the life cycle of a startup or, or even a large company putting their apps and services together for consumers. And I think there's also some uh, tension around the kind of data that telcos have about us and can listen in and kind of can track our locations. They've got all that data about us and our habits and when we use our phone so they know what time we wake up, when we turn our alarm off, uh, what time we're going to sleep, what we're listening to. I mean, all this stuff, it, it, it's all there. Uh, so what... What would be the ideal thing or some suggestions about how we play well together? Is it possible? Well, I think that is that is the role of the GSMA. I mean, by having consistent standards um, and regulating around it, while I'm not a big fan of regulation generally, it's regulation that makes people play nicely, for want of a better expression. Um, and that has made things possible. That said, there's st still with even within that, there's a lot of fragmentation. And the issue that a lot of startups have is that fragmentation. Because if you want to uh, integrate with Vodafone UK, it's not even the same as uh, uh, Vodafone in, in, somewhere else in the world. So standardization doesn't even exist within corporations yet uh, at a full level. Um, and that also lends itself to this question of why aren't startups doing more with telcos? And that is because I think a lot of them don't even realize what they could do. So if I was to talk to most app developers about network side APIs, they wouldn't know what on earth we're talking about. They wouldn't know that the network can give them location, that the network can send uh, uh, pings to phones to get information. There are a whole suite of services that aren't being utilized. And that is where the operators do need to up their game 
but they do need to standardize more. Uh, and that's seen now the rise of API aggregators who are helping that process in the same way as the old SMS aggregators did it uh, back in the early 2000s and made it possible to send messages anywhere. Um, now we've got API specialists. Uh, I met a company called Mechanics, which actually specialize particularly in network side APIs coming out of Tata. Um, really interesting services that allow you to do some really exciting stuff. But they are a bit like a telco. They don't know what to do with it. And that's down to the people in uh, some of the startups that will be here, no doubt, in uh, Hall 8.1, etc. Is this from a UK perspective or a global perspective, do you think? It's it's a global issue. Um, and that's that's the issue for operators, generally, is startups aim to be global companies. And therefore, if it doesn't work everywhere consistently it gives them real issues it means they won't launch either in certain territories or, or, or with certain operators um that's 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 the challenge it's been the same challenge from day one when i started in 99 when you had different ways of sending sms on different networks uh, and in different networks on the same operator in different countries um so that's that's the complexity they've built in it's the gsma's role stroke opportunity uh, to have existed to bring that together um, the question is can they keep up yeah i think this point about startups not seeing any benefits is a really important one i mean the first thing to realize is the market has actually been created for them I spoke earlier about sort of two billion smartphones that's actually the result of hardware plus operators working together they would not have a landscape in which to operate without that opportunity the trouble is that sort of they just take it for granted that it exists, um, but there's absolutely more that could be done for startups. And I think networks probably have some of the most amount of kind of unlocked opportunities sitting within them. And whether that's the APIs that you were talking about um, or the data that they collect, I mean, just to give you an example, they you know they can probably infer location about everyone using their network. They can infer probably activities as well based on the data going back and forth. And actually, with the likes of kind of um, big data and AI algorithms, they can actually work out you know, even down to what app you're using, what kind of queries you're making. Now, there's definitely privacy and ethical issues in, into that as well. But they probably have the richest attention data available, more so than someone like Google, who you know is always held up as that example, or Facebook, because they really do see everything, and they probably you know they have the location ping as well, so much deeper knowledge of what you're doing in the physical world. But most of them aren't exploiting it. There's just you know. Each operator has a division that's responsible for looking at how that can be utilized. But most of that, they want to do it internally. I think the big opportunity is for them to work out how do they make that available as a service in the same way that kind of their data, their networks are completely open for any consumer to use. Asking for that to happen in the short term is difficult because it's an age-old problem that they are not willing to give up that much of the value because they see they want to capture as much of that value as possible. They look at startups and basically see them as competition for capturing that same value. And for startups, there's so much opportunity in just doing things on top of, you know, they know you spoke about WhatsApp earlier. That's a great example. You don't have to integrate with the operators to do that. So why bother? And that was kind of what defeated IMS and all the, you know, great hope of operators for doing value added service over the top of the network. And, you know, Netflix has done the same thing to them. Everyone does it. And so I still think, um, operators probably need to adjust their expectations about what they can gain in the future. So I was at uh, Vis-a-Vis in 1999, where there was a vision at Vodafone 
to bring together all the data they had about consumers and use that data powerfully to do all sorts of interesting marketing, services, etc. They're still talking about trying to achieve it, or rather, they've achieved the aggregation of the data, but they just never have enabled the services to be launched. And I think that that I think they need to take a more and I'll pick a, a London centric example, more transport for London approach, which is actually just to make the data available and other people will work out what to do with it. Uh, it worked really well in London. They didn't develop the app for the cycle hiring uh, service. What they did was they made an API available that told you whether cycles were available or not in certain locations. And other people worked out all the other stuff. So you don't have to do it all. And I think that's the challenge to the operator, knowing to stop. And I think the challenge will be setting up the business models that enable that to operate. No one's yet done that, I think, particularly successfully. I mean, there are pilot programs out there. I think the thing is, when you ask why hasn't it happened before, because that's really the question for me. You know, it's like I've been hearing about this for 20 plus years and you go, what on earth? The reality is there has been easy growth opportunities for operators by expanding their customer base. And whether that's been, you know, opening up into emerging markets or frankly, there's been a massive growth in the use of, you know, mobile phones. We've seen it. Everyone's gone from using five megabytes of data and worrying about bill shock to now no one thinks about using five gigabytes or more. Uh, and so for operators, there's been an easy growth path. I think we are now getting to the point where, you know, you penetration is such it's basically one-to-one everyone's got got it um there's still room for that data to increase but um if you think about a saturated market you have to look for new opportunities so i think operators are going to be forced into looking at this area because it's the only potential for growth and that that's an exaggeration um they will do it first by looking internally to improve their own cost of operations and efficiency a simple example would be work out how many people have had drop calls or a poor data experience that using predictive analytics you can tell they'll be more at risk of churn that's a great thing for them to do internally because they'll be able to lower the cost of acquisition and retention rates will go up but that self-same data will be really interesting for startups to do something different with and as Paul was expressing you know the, the London transport for London model is great so probably the answer is to what should they do make sure they get the data into a uh, a format that is is good is easier you can do interesting things on top of it and then put an open api there and then probably just let people have it and then work out the charging model that's what startups do after all so if that's the case isn't there a challenge when you're extending the value chain that there's a bunch of apis going into uh, an app or a service we've got gdpr coming data is being moved around from country to country, from server to server. Uh, How does a customer find out where their data is, how it's being used? How does a CEO of a company, whether that's a startup or whether that's Marks and Spencers, understand where the possible breakages are in that chain of of data that's that's going through the, the pipes? Is this something we need to be worrying about, thinking about? So um, I have to say there's two views of the world. There's a world where things are, everybody's out to get me and the data I need to keep very close. And there's another world where you give up your data and you get a lot better services for it. Um, And I think, I personally think people are overly concerned sometimes about some of their data. And I think then bizarrely also they then are very lax with certain relatively important data. I really 
don't mind about people seeing some of my internet traffic, etc., and then serving me better ads on the back of it. Because I get a better ad. I get something that's relevant to me. Well, I should do. I mean, obviously not, not from some follow-on ads that still are selling me the service I bought last week. That's clearly bad wastage. But what you do get is if it's done right. And I think the example I give is you go into a petrol station and the person behind the counter recognizes you and says, would you like your normal newspaper and croissant uh, with your fuel this morning? Now, if I say that there's an ad monitoring service that changes the ad that's on display based on its analysis of you, people are worried. But really, what's the difference? It's both a good customer service. But what about the unintended consequences if you take that beyond, well, even just looking at advertising, I know we've talked about this before, where because of your um, profile, that's like a certain other kind of demographic profile, that you only get served ads of a certain kind, which may give you um, a poverty of ambition because you only get served low-level products. And you only get served insurance for people who are a high risk. Um, and there's lots of unintended consequences around that. And what is what happens if the content that you get, get served around con, um, uh, articles, so you're reading one thing, but because of who you are, you get served up links to trash articles and fake news and all that kind of stuff. And that just seems to me like a whole can of worms. I mean, the, the data and the things that sit on top of it are only good as the data and the algorithm that kind of serve all of that. And yes, tech always has unintended consequences. That's not new. Um, what I would say is perhaps the accelerative effect of all tech, and it always happens fast and fast with each generation, means the bad things can creep on us in a more unexpected way. And I do think we need to be aware of that. Um, but we were talking about data and what should markets and what does everyone do about GDPR? And everyone's kind of panicking about that at the moment, quite rightly. But that is because people recognize just how important that is at a level. It's probably the most valuable asset that as consumers we have. And I think, you know, if I'm looking for the next Facebook or the next Google, it's going to be a company that is able to exploit that data opportunity and particularly help consumers understand it and control it. And, you know, whether that's done through something like a blockchain or whatever, it will be really interesting to see. Um, but inherently, I remain an optimist about all technology. I think it has had an enormous impact on society so far and it you know has been a positive influence if i look back you know say 20 years and see where mobile was was then think about all the things that we can do now all the positives it's brought yeah it's absolutely brought negatives as well and people complain about people using their phone in a restaurant or the effect on young children and the mobile first generation um but i have to hope that the next 10 years um, will be positive. I mean, the, the thing is, people look at it now and go, I don't understand how it will work. It seems hopelessly optimistic that all of this will be sorted out and there'll be the right regulatory framework or there'll be the right tools available to exploit it. But then I, again, I, I look back 20 years and go, if we, you know, did we think that all the things that exist today and we don't think about the way networks work? And it's just incredible to me that you can pick up a phone, you use your apps, your phone anywhere on the planet without really thinking about it. The same will apply, apply to data. So, yes, we have to be worried about the unintended consequences. Yes, we have to be concerned about the ethics. And actually, it ties into a much wider debate around equality in general. But 
ultimately, I'm a tech optimist, so I look forward to the next 10 years. I think, as always, every, every change is both a threat and an opportunity. Um, I mean, taking GDPR as an example, yes, it clearly is. A, I mean, it's a, it's a massive threat to businesses. Uh, it's a massive opportunity stroke threat to consumers. Um, it's a bluntly a pain in the ass. Um, but... That's the regulatory environment. So we need to work with it. Now, I've actually met a couple of startups recently who are specifically looking at how to use data that's been given back to the individual post-GDPR and their access and then be able to monetize that for the benefit of both the consumer but also the services that might run off of it. Um, one of those is a company called Digi.me, um, and they are looking at how... I personally aggregate my own data and control it. Um, and then there's a healthcare startup that's looking at how you aggregate your own health information. Um, and that is uh, pulling together all of your own data from different places, which is... <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Sorry, am I, you're telling me to go up no, or down? No, 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 you're, you're shaking. No, no, he's okay. I don't hear you. Um, so... Um, so particularly dealing with, for example, a healthcare startup. Um, and that is aggregating all of your own personal healthcare data from different providers. So your healthcare is split over a whole series of areas. And there's also then well-being data coming from perhaps your devices. And by pulling it all together, you get a much better picture of your own healthcare, but that you can then share that with healthcare providers to potentially give you lower cost of insurance, uh, to give you... Um, uh, access to uh, emerging treatments where drug companies are looking to work with somebody who uh, has a condition. Uh, it's a very interesting area. Massive, massive opportunity, massive threats. So lower cost insurance for healthcare, that sounds like a whole can of worms because that's a quirk of fate. You could be born with certain conditions and I think that, that gets into political areas of uh, of uh, life but with all this stuff that we're talking about massive systems acres and acres of data global type regulations and consistencies and standards and actually to anyone who's not in our industry listening to this they'll be thinking gosh that's very very complicated and I was talking to uh, Iliko the other day, who is normally at this podcast, but couldn't be with us today. And he was talking about one of his projects uh, that he, he was uh, working on and the challenge that they were having, keeping track of who knew what about the project, because it was so large that no single person had the, a holistic view of the project because of its scale. And that was causing problems in decision-making. And my comment back to him was, well, the, our digital world is getting more and more complex every day. And it's got beyond human scale. And how do we create that human scale and bring it back to human scale uh, to make it more meaningful and more manageable for the individual? I think some of the health data is amazing. I met someone last night whose wife is with a um, mobile health startup or rather digital health startup where their artificial intelligence can detect um, 
mammograms. It's doing mammograms and can detect any inconsistencies much better than a human eye, much more consistently and much cheaper. It's really exciting. But human scale, I, I think it is important. It, it, it's a great question. Um, and actually, you can look at an analogy in the car industry people will constantly complain now that 20 years ago I used to be able to repair my car because I understood how everything worked in it. Now, you know, they have probably 15, 20 computers in them, you know, thousands of sensors and you, you can't possibly understand it. And even the experts are essentially plugging in another computer and letting that run the diagnostics. Imagine how much worse that's going to get when we're talking about autonomous vehicles and all the software and services that are required to run those. And that's a relatively constrained area. And what we're talking about is often systems that run across multiple of those uh, sectors. But again, I'm, I'm not sure I'd ever get scared about it. Um, because I'll take kind of inspiration from nature and I would look at ecosystems uh, and understanding how those are built up. The individual bits within it, you know, are incredibly specialized. They live in their own niches, but they add up to the greater whole. So, you know, we can talk about habitats and then right up to ecosystem level. Actually, I think we need to work out how technology can do uh, the same thing. And yes, having it understandable at a human scale is a great thing if possible, but that's probably what well, if you talk to futurists, the next thing is actually having computers or artificial intelligences augment us so that we can appreciate and understand those things. It's probably the next big step in development. And it gets very sci-fi, you know, future-looking when you, when you talk about it. But again, I have reason to be optimistic because if you look at most things that operate, in you know, most companies, you will not have an individual who understands how everything operates, but the collective absolutely can. And you know, the mobile industry, I think, is a great example of that. No one understands how everything in every area works a across it. But as a community, we have built something that is, frankly, absolutely amazing. And you will have a specialist who will be able to tell you everything about a software-defined radio or the air radio interface, which most people are going to just look blank at when you start talking about. Others will be a specialist in app development and the correct and the best way to do that. And designers and all of those add up. So how do you get it back to human scale? I think actually probably the critical thing is making sure that some of the most important decisions remain to be made by humans because there will be a temptation to more automate everything away because that will be the most cost-effective way to do it. And so I think perhaps the burden falls on regulation to make sure that there is still a human element in it. But it won't be human alone. It will be human assisted by an AI. And that's the only possible way to understand complex systems, in my view. Let me butt in here. As health is a sector I'm deeply involved in, I think it's the other way around. I think it should be AI assisted by the human. And what I mean when I speak with doctors and I try to explain to them what AI will do for them is having AI predict what I'm sick from and having then the doctor hold my hand. That's what they should be doing. They should be caring about how I feel, explaining my disease, but they shouldn't, okay, obviously they come and confirm the diagnosis, but they shouldn't be the ones actually doing all the tests and finding it. That should be automated, and they should be there for me, for the sick person. And that's a change I see. I see them fighting it. I actually know the older doctors, there's like, I was at a conference recently and he exclaimed, he was standing up there and he says, AI will never take the doctor's job away. 
obviously that's going to change, but they're having a hard time understand how they can do the job better. They're actually going to be much better because they're going to confirm this automated diagnosis. They're going to say, yes, this is it. Yes, you found it. And this is how we're going to treat it. That's the job. How do you treat this whole thing? Yeah, I think we've seen that in um, GP healthcare um, where there are now systems that are as good, if not better, already than di- for diagnosis than the doctor. Um, it's inevitable. Um, a human can only keep up to date with so many diseases um, as disease discovery and treatment becomes more complicated it's inevitable that the gp won't know everything um and that's a very hard point in your life to suddenly realize actually i can't control things the way i used to um but the mammogram example that allows whole new areas whereby that expertise can be made much more widely available whereas one excellent diagnosis by a clinician can now be millions of diagnoses that then start to spot new symptoms or spot emerging symbols, um, and you get into a whole new area of healthcare. And I think that's where the the bringing the data side, that big data AI piece together, but with a human on the front end who can navigate. I think it's really exciting too. I mean, when I got all tingly when I heard about the mammogram thing, I just thought it was just absolutely brilliant. I think one of the issues is there's a lot of data out there and I'm thinking I've been wearing my Fitbit for I don't know how long. I think it's about three years I've been using a Fitbit. There's a lot of data there. There is zero analysis of that data and I think that's a frustration. So although we're seeing great strides in public health type stuff with clinicians and doctors and what have you, there's actually data on our phones via our Fitbits uh, that Consumers can have, a, you know, you can have a Fitbit type device for a tenner. It's, it's not expensive, but could add some real value to our lives. And we could have some help and insight of how to improve very small things uh, to make our lives better. Or even just being able to compare how your steps are doing this year versus your heart rate versus a month ago, a year ago, two years ago. Uh, is there anything out there? I mean, it's a good point because I think data is a bit like water. You know, on planet Earth, most of it's frozen up, not very useful. It's only useful when it's kind of free to flow in liquid form. Um, and yet going back to the point that Paul was making, yes, uh, and Vicky, it's, it is about orchestration and governance. Um, but we shouldn't also forget that actually it will get to the point where AI or these artificial intelligence will be able to do anything better than us, you know, you know, still 50 years away in some cases, and you can have an argument about superintelligence and, you know, when the doomsday or utopia is going to happen. But in the short term, there's an immediate impact, which is absolutely about it being a tool where AI gets better at us and doing quite constrained problems and looking at mammograms or looking for skin cancer cells or where it happens to be. Some of those really high value tasks are going to happen right now. But you're right, Helen, at the moment, most of the data, you know, most of the attitude is kind of lock it away, keep it under lock and key. Or it's not even that. It's just through inadequate methods. I mean, because you present a kind of summary of the data and that's what people think Fitbit is all about. And yeah, that's great. But if it's sitting in its own silo, it's not terribly useful until it's combined with the health records. And that's what Paul and Vicky were kind of alluding to. A lot of the data only becomes valuable when you add it to another bit of data 
and another and another. But doing that is hard because people do not want to give up the value of it because they, they recognize it has value. And as I say, this is why I think the next big startup is going to be the one that can control the sharing of that data between different entities, but also give people the kind of trust that they are happy enough to give it up and give it to other people. And I think, you know, the blockchain is talked a lot about in this context. And I think it's right because it probably does need to be an open record. It does need to be completely transparent. You do need to be able to revoke it. So all the stuff around GDPR and right to be forgotten. That's absolutely right. But we are really, really immature in the systems to do that. And part of the problem is that the full value won't be unlocked until all those systems are in place to support it. And while they're not there, why bother doing it? It's a kind of a chicken and egg problem. And I, I can't see an easy way to unlock that because I can't see who's going to make the first big investment. It probably comes down to you know the four big tech companies because they have enough data that they can cross-connect the silos and start doing interesting stuff with it. But even for them, and it comes back to what we were talking earlier about with operators, is it the most valuable thing they can be doing? Is it the best place to put their investment? Because all investment is finite. And at the moment, I don't think there is the momentum to do it. So I think it will come down to we will see it happen in little pockets. Health is probably the best example because it is so high value because there's already quite rigorous uh, controls around what format sits in, um, albeit in multiple different versions. But people can very readily understand the benefits handing it over to pharma to be able to do, you know, effectively virtual drug trials or something like that becomes really interesting. There's genetic information and health records, but most of it is very poorly constrained or very poorly defined. You were talking about Fitbit. Yeah, great. It exists in the Fitbit database. How do we get that into a shareable format that everyone can use? It's, there's no impetus to do that like there is with a PDF or doc. Sorry, really quick. I want to twist your arm and take it towards ethics, but really quickly, Helen, Environment never really was in the, um, when it came to health, even conventional health. Nobody took into consideration your environment or what you were feeling or how much you walked or your heart rate. So this is something new. The data suddenly exists, but they, they're now starting to think about it if they can use it. But I'm working with a startup that actually can predict if somebody's hireable or not hireable through their voice. And yes, Helen's sort of shocked. Okay, so no, forget what they're doing. What I was going to say is they, I know they can predict that with about 66% uh, accuracy right now. So they give it to us humans, the team, to listen in. So our accuracy was really low. Mine was around 59%. And I kept, I, I was saying this to friends and I says, they said to me, is this right? Is this how it's going to be? Is this how I'm going to be judged whether I'm hired or not, a machine? What do you think about that? Let's go into a little bit. This I wanted to get you into ethics. Move on. Um, I'm kind of horrified um, by that because for the winners, it's brilliant, but it's just way, way worse for the losers because they have no hope. You say that, but why is it worse when the machines are doing it better than the human can? What What's to say that the human is not better? Now, I agree because it, it does horrify me because it happens in a black box and no one understands it which is actually why the most interesting part of GDPR is not all the stuff around data. It's actually you have the right to understand how a decision has been made, and that will be really important in the future. But actually, I sort of go, if you can guarantee that they are making a fair decision, it's not a bad thing because humans have bias and are unequal as well. The trouble is there doesn't seem to be an agreed way of building that in. And actually, if it, you know, if 
the whole point about machines is they're kind of seen as infallible and can't be wrong. They absolutely can be, just as humans can be. And so this isn't a man versus machine thing. This is just about inequality. It's bad whenever it happens, however it happens. And so I would like to see that be the focus of the conversation, not whether it's a machine making the judgment or a human making the judgment. It's just as bad if you're on the receiving end of a poor decision. Um, I, I, I agree. It's the, the equality issue is the one for me because there will be people who for whatever reason their voice isn't consistent and isn't showing perhaps their true self or their true nature um their accent is a bit weird they have a speech impediment I mean there's all sorts of different things that maybe the machine can take into consideration um but there will be an unfairness to it and it feels like the unfairness is worse because it's not a human unfairness it feels now whether the reality is different it's hard to say but it it feels more unfair somehow yeah I think that's the challenge it feels that but actually if I say it a different way this system removes all traces of sexism racism you cannot make they're not making a judgment based on those things if it's been coded right. And I think the big challenge is, it's not actually what the black box does, but it's what the person told the black box to do. And how do you, how do you start to code for that? Um, and I'll give you a specific example we've been playing with. So I'm going to buy a, an autonomous vehicle, and my autonomous vehicle is rushing towards somewhere, and a person steps out in front of me. The car has two choices. It drives into a wall and almost certainly kills me, or it drives into the pedestrian and almost certainly kills them. The question is, should I, as the owner of the car, be able to decide what levels of uh, it would make that ethical decision at? You as a human being would make it in a snap second. But someone's got to decide it. Now, does the manufacturer decide it? Is that a marketing feature? My car is more self-provational than another, or it's a, a Volvo and it's it's nicer than others, and it throws up some really. Si- or should or, or le- you're more important than the pedestrian? Yes, is, and then it's recognised you. This is a serious. And then okay, it's a small child, so you're now making one decision. Actually, it's a guy in a hoodie being chased by police while wielding a knife. I make a different decision, but how do I set the ethics of my vehicle Rafe <laughs> well it, it, it's interesting because uh, Daimler and Mercedes have already come out and said we'll save the driver that's their stance on this which is a perfectly reasonable one to take um, but it comes back to as you said how do you code it in and what all of these algorithms do is codify a bit of human bias and actually the concern for me is not that it's the fact that the attitude tends to be that they are infallible and actually the way most machine learning works is it's kind of self-correcting or it learns off a data set and that data set itself can inherently contain bias and so we need to have an adjustment and actually Helen kind of demonstrated it brilliantly here by saying it feels unfair actually that human sense is going to be really hard to replicate in algorithm because you, you can absolutely replicate everything that a human can do in time um, so I think there isn't an easy answer to that. I mean, it's one that the philosophers have been talking about for ages, and actually it's an, a, a new version of the trams and which track do you switch them to. And actually a lot of it comes down to, when you we talk about it, is do you actively make a decision to do it or does someone else do it? 
And as Paul suggests, someone will have had to make that decision somewhere. Someone will have had to code it in. And ultimately, they will be the one who are, if you like, to blame for whoever gets run over, whereas most agency at the moment is a direct response to a bit of human action in the case of kind of the switch track which is two trolley buses or trams going along you choose which track to switch it onto whether you run over granny or run over three children and actually most people say they will not change the points and it will just fate will play out as is intended um, but some people will actively make a decision but the point is they've actively made a decision in the future you're not going to be doing that because it will be some algorithm doing it on your behalf so i mean yeah incredibly scary but you can also take the tech optimist view of it and say, actually, it will be able to make a more rational, better decision. And ultimately, what do you, what do you want to happen? Because as humans, we tend to look at the individual case. And you know, people bring up children and go, of course, we should save the children. Well, if a, human, a machine intelligence can look at that, that early scores, and they will have predictive analysis, so they'll probably be able to tell what job they'll have, what value they'll add to society. The simple reality is, you should save the person that will have greatest net overall value for society. And of course, young people typically have a higher thing left to give than older people. So, you know, they have an advantage. But if there's someone who's likely to get some breakthrough miracle medical cure in the next few years, shouldn't you save those over someone who's just going to have a fairly boring life? And actually, that's the sort of decision a machine, in theory, would be able to make. Now, does that make me uncomfortable? Absolutely. But you know, is that any different to kind of humans making decisions now? Not really. I mean, there's judges out there who change people's lives based on practically a whim, you know, do you give them community service or do you put them away for five years? You know, it does concern me that that kind of decision, that agency switches from humans to machines, because that's the big thing that's different. You know, up until now, you know, technology has largely been assisting us and ultimately, we've still made the decisions, but we are going to be delegating decisions that have massive impacts. And, and we, it's already happening by stealth. And people who don't think it is, just look at the you know, fuss over Facebook and the US election or the results that come up in Google or you choose which flight to take or which company survives and which doesn't. It's already happening. It's going to be much more profound when it's much more deeply embedded in our lives. So, yeah, definitely something to keep me awake at night. Should we be teaching philosophy to mobile developers? Um, I think we need to be making sure that the development ecosystem has that thought process. I think an individual developer, that's perhaps a difficult, uh, difficult decision. But uh, I, I don't think it's very practical. Um, a lot of developers are not the most human understanding uh, people um, but the business needs to be uh. I think honestly it's an awareness of the consequences of what we're building and it's we're pretty bad at that at the moment as we've seen you know all the bad things that happen for technology <clears throat> if it can happen faster and quicker we need to be more aware of it and so you know, at the moment we have chief digital officers within a business I'm sure we're going to end up with chief data officers I mean they already exist but that's going to become a big thing who's responsible for that because it's such an important area I'm pretty sure we're going to see ethics as a thing that a company needs to report on in the same way they report on their environmental concerns will become really important. Uh, and yes, it does need to be a fundamental part of the services we build um, because you will want to be able to trace them back. And it comes back to transparency, which we're having around data at the moment. It will be transparency around decisions. And basically, that is an ethical dimension. 
I think there was a conversation yesterday on the news. Um, Alibaba's CEO actually touched the, the subject that we should start teaching people philosophy, music, arts, and not only about how machines work. We should not what not teach them what machines do, but teach them things that machines can't do. So moving on a bit, um, I want us to discuss a little bit what what to expect to see at the MWC new devices, those kind of things. And another t subject that I'd like you to talk about is what's happening with this specific event compared between Europe and the US? Is it going to go to the US? Is it pulling away from Europe? What are, you, what, what are you seeing? Certainly in terms of devices, I mean, we've got the S9 launching this evening, and I think we're going to see another small rectangular glass-fronted device with a camera on the front and a camera on the back and slightly bigger memory and a bigger processor than last year. Um, it's, but that said, it is exciting. You've got the fact that it might have uh, 512 gigabytes of uh, storage. Um, you've got face recognition technology, which will feed that big data. Even if you just take something, and it's linking the two back, is you know the iris scanner, is collecting data on my iris every day. Could that data be going somewhere? Is that able to predict stuff? Um, so I think actually how phones and devices hook into big data and become uh, more Internet of Things-esque uh, will be something we'll see. Um, as I say, the challenge is always about innovation. It's, it's quite hard to make that big leap. Um, you never really quite see it coming as well. That's, the, that's why it's a big leap. Um, so while I'm not expecting to see anything particularly big leap, you never know. Um, but what you often see and why we come is to go and look at lots of different things because that's what sparks ideas and creativity. It's actually by bringing it all together, the person who runs the network meets the startup that becomes the next big idea. Um, and uh, that we shouldn't underestimate its networking and and, and industry building nature. As far as the US, I have a bias. I'm European. <laughs> um, I've never thought uh, America never really got mobile early. And they've been playing catch up ever since. I think they've caught up in some of the tech startup areas, but less so in the infrastructure. Um, so but that's a, a biased view. <laughs> yeah, I mean, handset it's still one of the things that gets people excited at MWC. Um, and I agree, you know, iris recognition, you could use that to do attention data. And in an app, you could tell how much attention someone's paying, or you could use it to sense emotions. That's really interesting. Um, sort of more prosaically, we're seeing a lot more happen in terms of shifting from the high end to the low end quickly. So Alcatel yesterday announced uh, about five new devices, which including screens with the 18 to 9 aspect ratio, which were only on the high-end LG devices last year. So it's taken less than 12 months for the tech to make it from the high-end to kind of the mid-tier or low-end devices. And that's happening quicker and quicker. Um, Asus is announcing the new version of their Zen phone. It's going to have two 20 megapixel cameras for taking selfies on the front. That seems amazing to me when a few years ago it was like a VGA camera. Um, Huawei announcing the P20. There's also a lot of AI. LG are talking about um, Vision AI in their camera, which basically means it helps you take better, better pictures. And that's you know a repeated pattern using AI or basically using algorithms to help you do things quicker or more efficiently on your phone. Whether that's rearranging the order the apps come in, or the virtual private assistants like Siri, Cortana, or Google Assistant, or Bixby or LG are going to probably do something themselves there. But it is still a sea of sameness because you get Motorola announcing the new kind of G6, and that's going to be in a, a range of colors. Great. You know, 
uh, HMD or the new Nokia are going to announce a bunch of phones. I think the interest is in actually some of the way they're doing software. So this is going to be the first show we see Android Go, which is kind of the low-end version of Android working on phones below 512 megabytes of RAM and the sort of specific Go versions of the Google apps that take less data to store on the phone and use less data. And actually, that's the first while I've seen, for a while I've seen an initiative really about improving low-end phones, which, um, you know, actually have come on in leaps and bounds, but have been a bit stagnant the last few years. Similarly, Android One, which is the kind of unbranded version of Android Nokia's, sorry, HMD's putting out, I think, into the Nokia's, and we'll see more announcements around that. So kind of just improving the user experience, and it's great to see that. I mean, it, it really is. Sony will probably announce a couple of their new uh, high-end handsets, including a compact one, which I like to see because I'm not always a big fan of the fact that screens have got bigger and bigger in the last few years. We'll see the uh, iPhone 10 uh, knockoffs from China, Noah, the N10 and the Dodgy 4, which is just such a great name, um, are actually examples that, that have already been in the media. So all of that really excites me because it, it, it's still fun seeing all of those. And after all, they are the things that sit in your phone, are your interface to this world. And the fact that, you know, there are, you know, billions of them about and you can get them for just a few hundred dollars, even at, you know, for a really high performing high end handset, right down to sort of, you know, 30 bucks for a low end Android device, but also looking at things that are being announced around eSIM and ARM announcing something called iSIM, which is basically a SIM card that's just going to be less than a millimeter wide and built into the system on a chip. That's fantastically great for things like IoT and wearables, you know, because that will mean suddenly you don't have to worry about size anymore. So there'll be things like that will be catching my attention, I'm sure. And there'll be those uses of IoT that no one's thought of. I mean, last year it was the, I think, the experiment that St. Andrews University did with seals to do seal tracking to work out how deep they were diving. That was a, that was a great. There'll be things like that that capture the imagination. And actually, that's why I still love coming to Barcelona, because there's always something to see, you know, what's the funky handset that everyone goes, oh, who, who came up with that? Or the device that really shouldn't have been made smart and connected. But for all those ones which you laugh about, there are also the ones that, you know, are really quite life-changing. And I remember last year, it was actually about the initiative to make e-books available in emerging markets, kind of zero-rated on operators. So suddenly people had access to a whole load of tech books and education materials they didn't have before. Um, but equally, I'll get excited about the S9 and um, maybe it's a bit sad, but, you know, yeah, they're going to have 3D emojis. It's basically the an emojis knocked off from the iPhone X. But, you know, great. Someone will be able to send me a talking pile of poo from my Android phone as well now. So, you know, so, you know uh, it, it, if that's not progress, I, I don't know what is. Um, uh, but all of these things kind of go round in circles. I mean, like Samsung with their DeX technology, and they're going to be probably announcing a DeX pad, which suddenly means your phone can be like your computer. And actually, it feels like it's finally got to the point where that might actually be workable. It's a solution we've seen loads of times, Motorola Atrix, and then um, Microsoft did it with Continuum. But actually, DeX, I've tried it a couple of times. It, it does work. It's, it, it's intriguing. So that, you know, that's still kept the imagination. Or you see... British startup Planet Computing coming up with the uh, Gemini, which is kind of a cyan-like uh, device, which is running Android and dual boots with Linux. You know, I'm, I've, I've ordered one of those. I'm going to see it in person. Really looking forward to that. So hopefully it's coming across. I'm still, I still get excited about this stuff. And, you know, yeah, the handsets is a bit sea of sameness, but there's so much more to MWC, and that's what I enjoy about it. So, yeah, roll on the next week. <laughs>
I'm excited that your excitement is, is rubbing off on me now, Ray. <laughs> but I hadn't really thought about uh, all these different devices because I just think of it as a slab of glass that is a bit faster and has a bit more memory. Um, but now I'm going to look at it in a whole new light. I'm also interested to see the different country pavilions and what quirky little startups might be lurking. And they've just got two people and, you know, a tiny, tiny little space. Uh, but you end up having a really interesting conversation about them because they've got a different vision for what their future m- might look like and, and what, what they're building. Um, I'm really also looking forward to seeing all the health stuff um, because that can affect people's lives so directly and so quickly and isn't dependent on you buying the latest device necessarily because it's something, it's different sensors that are being used and used in your GP surgery or in hospitals or or whatever. Um, And I'm interested to see the scale. I'm hoping that there will be more variety of stands. I'm hoping it's probably a faint hope, but I'm hoping that there might be some innovation in the advertising hall. (laughs) And Rafe is laughing now, but it has been a hope of mine for several years now. And (laughs) This year it's going to be all about innovation in uh, fraud detection. And actually that was the thing that started last year, but now just like the rest of the ad industry, there'll be five layers to the fraud takes that just to get you really excited about it but it is important because that's about effectiveness and making sure advertising does what it wants but you know i I can get excited about that because that's going to make life better for all the people buying advertising even if it's still like this really complicated ag tech stack when it's actually should be a lot simpler i think helen said something very interesting there about the health stuff and i think it pulls in with what rafe was saying about lower end devices actually what's making health really interesting in mobile is how it penetrates into wider in india wider in uh, south america and that has to be low-end devices um there the challenge is very different i was speaking to the ceo of vodafone india his biggest market penetration tactic is to put charging points into villages because they haven't got electricity, so they can't charge a phone in the first place. And if you do that, then they, then there's a market. It's going to be a good show, isn't it, Vicky? <laughs> okay, so we're going to wrap it up. Um, this was an interesting conversation. Thank you all for being here. That was Helen Keegan, Rafe Blandford, and Paul Swaggle. Swaddle. Swaddle. I'm sorry. I think I even tweeted you wrong. But I, I've got the company right, so... Yeah, that, that, that matters. Um, thank you for this conversation. We're all looking forward to a, an interesting MWC. Um, Rafe managed to get us excited. So we're going to go looking for all those things now. Bye from me. This was Vicky Colovu for Tech Talk Central. Bye. You're listening to Tech Talk Central 